Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we are your people, longing to hear and see your works in our world. And in longing to see you at doing great things, we often miss the small things that you do in our midst. So we ask you in this time of worship to send your spirit among us, to open our ears and soften our hearts so that we might hear your still small voice speaking to us, showing us that you are indeed Lord over all and that we should choose you in our lives. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, so that whether through me or in spite of me, we may be transformed in your presence. Amen. The second reading actually is from the Old Testament. Um, yep, First uh, Kings chapter seven or chapter eighteen. Uh, we continue a little bit further from our discussions last week with Jeroboam and Re- uh, Rehoboam, and we jump forward to Elijah on Mount Carmel where he feels like he is the last prophet of God left, while the rest of the nation and the rest of the prophets were in league with Baal and Asher. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 325 of the Old Testament, or you can follow along on the words of the screen above. Chapter 18, starting in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah... Ahab said to him, is it, it is you, you troubler of Israel. He answered, I have not troubled Israel. You have, and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the balls. Now, therefore, have all Israel assembled before me at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, excuse me, Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put it on fire. And I will prepare the other bull, or sorry, put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. All the people answered, Well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he has wandered away, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. 
Then they cried aloud, and as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, the evening offering. But there was no voice, no answer, no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come closer to me. And all the people came closer to him. First he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And then they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time, so that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O God, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust. And Levin looked up, licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord is indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Last week, we talked about who do we go to and ask for advice? Where do we seek counsel from? Who do we choose to listen to when we have a decision to make? And we talked about two kings in Israel, Israel uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, who both ended up listening to the wrong people and making, making the worst choices that were possible. And in doing so, split a kingdom and ended God's promise for both of those kings. So in light of that, it would make sense that perhaps making no choice at all is a better option than making the wrong one. Sometimes this is how I work personally as much as I don't like it. Tell me if you've ever been in this situation. You've gone to a diner, and this always happens at a diner. You open the menu, and it's about 20 pages long. And when you look at that menu, you have absolutely no idea what to pick because of all of the options before you. And you don't want to make the wrong choice because you don't want to get stuck with food you're not going to like. And invariably, if you're anything like me, whether you go to a wedding at a wedding reception or you're at a restaurant, you pick something, somebody else picks something else, and you always seem to like what somebody else picked. It happens to me all the time, to the point where if I'm sitting in a restaurant, sometimes with these long menus, sometimes with shorter menus, the waiter or waitress is just standing there waiting for me to make up my mind until I finally run out of time and I finally have to pick. Now, if I have a hard enough time making a decision with something as light 
as what I'm going to eat, you can imagine that there are times when it's very hard for me to make some of the bigger decisions in my life that I have to make. Because as soon as we decide one thing, the other things are cut off from us. As soon as I make this choice for this meal, I no longer have the options for the other. Can you relate to that at all? In any way, has that ever happened to you where you have two choices to make and you're not quite ready to make a choice between any of them until you absolutely have to? And then sometimes, more often than not, the only choices that are left available to us, none of them are good. I tell that story because when Elijah is speaking to the people, he doesn't say, stop worshiping Baal and choose God. What he tells them is stop trying to hop between multiple options. Stop trying to hedge your bets. Stop trying to live in that in-between time where you don't have to decide. What Elijah wants is for the people to decide for themselves who it is they're going to worship because this going between is, doesn't help anybody and is not true worship. He leaves it up to them to decide who they're going to pick. He doesn't tell them, but he starts to set out on a test. And he orchestrates this whole thing between him and the 450 prophets of Baal, who is the god of thunder, the god of storms, in the, in the palace or the, the, the Parthenon or Pantheon, sorry. He is known for bringing storms. He is known in worship for controlling the weather and bringing lightning and fire. In fact, they're doing this in the middle of a drought, and the people know this. And so Elijah is already playing off of what's going on in the surrounding culture, that they're in the middle of a drought, and now they need to call on the god of storms to light the offering. Elijah doesn't even want to end there. He wants to set up this test to be completely uh, uh, undeniable. And so he says, bring two calves. These prophets, these ones can choose their, the one they want. I'll take the leftovers. He gives them the morning and most of the day to decide what to, to worship and to call on Baal to, to burn the sacrifice, to, to light the altar. And he lets them go. These 450 people calling the God of thunder and lightning and rain to send forth a lightning bolt to light the altar on fire with dry wood since they're in the middle of a drought and to carry forth. He's trying to set it up so that the people will see evidence that God is God. He wants the people to decide for themselves who they're going to worship, but he doesn't want to leave it up to chance. He doesn't want to leave it up for them to say, well, that one's good enough. The people, when they are told that they need to stop hopping from one to another and worshiping whatever God comes their way, have no answer. And it's either because they feel guilty for worshiping the wrong God, but I suspect it's more so that they were never forced to choose to begin with. They never realized that they had to choose. And the worship of Baal and Asherah and all of the other gods in that pantheon, 
you could worship multiple gods. You could choose which one you were going to follow at any given time, and likely you made altars to a bunch of different ones just in case. You didn't want to choose because as soon as you chose one god, you might make the other gods angry. And it is far safer to live in this unchosen area, this nebulous area where you're not committed to one any more than another so that you can get whatever blessings from the gods you can get without angering the gods over here and vice versa. And so for Elijah to come and say, you need to make a choice, is something that sounds foreign to these groups of people. But he doesn't leave them to make a choice without any kind of information, any kind of data, any kind of show of who God is or isn't. And so the gods of Baal, they spend most of the day crying out to Baal to light the fire. Just light the wood and the wood would burn the meat. And they cry out through the day, and Elijah starts egging them on a little bit. I mean, if you never see humor in the Bible, you're just not looking. Because Elijah's calling out to them, perhaps he can't hear you. Maybe he's on uh, on a trip, and you have to cry out louder. Perhaps he's sleeping, and you just got to wake him up. Just go a little louder. Perhaps he's just absent-minded, and you need to convince him. That's all. Just... Just go a little louder. And so they do. They redouble their efforts. They cry out louder. They, they cut themselves and bleed, all trying to call out to Baal so that he might come and light this kindling that's already dried out, proving that he is a God worthy of worship. Well, we get to the evening offering time, the evening sacrificial time. And by now, Baal had not answered. Now, whether or not Elijah is arguing that Baal doesn't exist or that he's just not a God that responds or is able to overcome God, the God of Israel, is another question. But Baal doesn't answer. And so Elijah, I love what Elijah does because it's a great example for what we need to do in our culture today when we call people, make a choice. You can't have it all. You can't go every which way. Make a choice. We don't have to tell them what choice to make. We don't have to say which one is the right one. But we can invite people to make a choice. Because uh, hopping back and forth as if a bird hopping from branch to branch doesn't lead to stability. It doesn't lead to blessing. It just leads to running around like a chicken with your head cut off. So as scary as making a choice can be, It will lead to some sort of stability. And so what Elijah does as he gathers the people, he says, come closer. You don't have to watch from afar. You don't have to think that you can kind of sort of make out what God is doing. Come closer. Come closer and see. And then pulling in what the people know He pulls up 12 stones representing each of the tribes of Israel, relying on their history, relying on who they are. And he builds an altar out of these 12 stones. And then he places the wood. He places up the bull. And then he does something very strange. He places out grain in a trench around the altar, but then he asks for 
four jars of water to pour on the bowl and the altar and the wood and the grain. And then he does that three more times. Again, this 12 recurring to remind the people of who they are and where they come from. So he pulls them in close. He drenches the wood and the grain. And he prays. Praise God, show your might in this act. Alight the flame so that the people may come to believe in you. Not so that you might be proven right, not so that you might be proven powerful, but so that the people may come to believe in you. And their hearts are transformed. This simple prayer with the people gathered close leads to a fire all engulfing coming down from the heavens. It burns the meat. It burns the wood. It melts and destroys the rock and the dust. And in an odd order of things says it laps up the water in the trenches. For me personally, the fact that the rock and the dust were utterly destroyed kind of tells me that the water wouldn't have lasted very long either. So I imagine that maybe the trench was further away. And then what happens is that the people believe. They have enough evidence. They have enough uh, of what they've seen to decide for themselves. And they choose the God of Israel. Now, how this relates to how we can interact with the world around us, I hope will become clear, if it's not already. The people in our world and our culture today have lost sight, have lost sight of what God is already doing. The people in the church have lost sight of what God is doing. We no longer tell the stories. We no longer share testimonies. We no longer talk to each other about what God is doing and what God has done. We no longer talk about how God has been a blessing to me in my daily life and how I treat my family, how I treat my coworkers, how I interact online, how I, I, I treat the stranger and those distant. We no longer talk about that I do these things because of what God has instilled in me and blessed me with. And we have a world who can make a choice but they don't have the evidence. They don't have the data. They don't have anything to base that choice on. And so they flit and they float as if they don't need to make one. If what we offer in the Christian faith today makes any difference in any of our lives, if it brings transformation in any of our lives, if it brings hope to us in how we live and how we encounter the atrocities and the violence and the pain in the world, if it has meant anything for our lives and our relationships, then surely we want that for other people. Surely we want to share what God has done for us so that others may experience it for themselves. We don't even have to talk about which religion is right. We don't have to talk about whether or not people will go to heaven when they die. We don't even have to go into any of that because people aren't asking those questions anymore yet. They're asking, what real difference does religion make? And for many, they said, it's been a pain in the foot. And it continues to be. 
what difference does Christianity make in the world? And they look at Christians whose lives look vastly the same as everyone else. And they see us treating people poorly and angrily. We see us celebrating, see Christians celebrating when a pastor who is outed for being a cross-dresser kills himself. And that happened in the last week. They people see Christians celebrating that. And they say, why would I want to be a part of that? The evidence and the data we're giving for people to make a choice does not lead to people making the, the choice that we feel would bring blessing. And so when people don't choose, when people refuse to hear about the Christian faith, when people say that's not for me because it's caused too much pain and damage in the world, that's on us because we're not sharing the data, the stories that will show that God is real, that God is Lord, and that following and choosing him brings blessing and hope and transformation. So my hope and my prayer for us is to gather the people in our spheres of influence, the people that we know, gather them in. Gather them close so that we might share. We're not going to do it through, through blasts of uh, uh, fire from the heavens that melt rock. I don't know if that's absolutely necessary for people today. What they do want to hear is the evidence that God is at work in people's lives, that God is bringing transformation, that those who were sick were healed, that those who were lost and, and, and lost in sin have been redeemed, and those who have felt lonely have been connected with a blessed community, those who have struggled with addiction through, through, through connecting with the people of God through Christ himself in prayer have been transformed. Not miraculously, not overnight, but that healing has happened. And if we can recapture what it means to share our stories of what God has done, then other people will have the information that they need to make a choice. And the choice they make, not up to us. We don't control that outcome. What we can control are the stories we tell. And so after our worship today, if you're out there drinking coffee and greeting one another and spending some time together, these are the questions that I want you to talk about. Spend some time on. When's the last time I've shared a story with someone else about what God has done in my life? When's the last time I've given evidence to somebody else of how good God is and the way God has blessed me, transformed me, brought to, from me from where I was to where I am now? When's the last time I've been willing to share that? There was a day that every United Methodist worship service had a time of testimony and celebration of sharing these stories. And people would come and hear them and say, I want that for myself. Now, we don't do that work during worship all the time. We haven't done it here in Berwyn in a long time from some folks that I was talking to in our Lunch and Learn Bible study the other day. Maybe it wouldn't be welcome here. I don't know. But anywhere that we are, when have we shared that story? If we can't think of one, how do we open our eyes to see God's blessing around us? How do we encourage each other to see that blessing? How do we shape it? 
and see it and celebrate it as God at work in the world. So those are the questions I want to leave you with this day as we move forward. This morning is a holy day cherished by many in the United Methodist Church. It was beloved by John Wesley himself, the founder of the Methodist Church, because it is a day that we remember that we do not come to faith on our own. It is a day that we remember that all that we have that has been passed down for us did not come from nowhere, but was passed by a long line of saints before us. So this morning we remember all of the saints that came before us, uh, we'll invite Mike, he will uh, ring the bell for us. We will uh, begin with prayer. We will read the names one at a time that are printed in the bulletin. These are the people that we, uh, of the saints of the church, of those that the church has provided care for in, um, in their time of loss, in that time of transition to the church triumphant. And after that, there will be a moment uh, for those of you who are here to lift up other names that you would like to remember. And then we will pray and remember those who have died in various situations around the world. Let us pray. God of the saints, we give you thanks for every saint who ever worshipped you, whether in brush arbors or cathedrals, whether wooden churches or crumbling cement meeting houses, where your name was lifted and adored, where your scriptures were read and your people served. We give you thanks, O God, for centuries of hands and service, hands groomed, hands stained with grease or soil, young hands, hands marked with age, holy hands of every shade raised in praise, serving hands that cooked, hammered, and held. We give you thanks, O God, for hard-working saints, whether hard-hatted or steel-booted, head-ragged or aproned, blue-collared or three-piece suited, they ministered on the earth for you, for us, for our children to come. We give you thanks, O God, for saints in a season of trials and tribulation, family and friends whose lives were taken from us far too soon, caregivers of every kind who put their safety before others. We give you thanks for all those that have contributed to your work that brings us to faith in you even now. And so, in gratitude for the gifts of these saints, we take a moment to name those who have died in the last year before you, reminding us that they are still a member of the body of Christ and proclaiming their lives as a gift to the church. As we name these names, as the bell rings, if you would like to stand in remembrance of those that we name, you are invited to do so as an act of prayer in celebration of the life that was. And we'll give time for each bell to ring between each name said. We celebrate Barbara Borst. We celebrate the life of Anne West. We celebrate the life of Carl Landek. We celebrate the life of Doris Krug.
we celebrate the life of Barbara Stockler. We celebrate the life of Adele Warlick. We celebrate the life of Mildred Hall. We celebrate the life of Walter Alloway. Loving God, we lift up all of those people who have died in earnest gun violence, tragic lives that were cut too short, young and old. For them, we ring a bell. For all those whose lives were cut short due to war and terrorism, we ring a bell. For all those who have been killed for lack of health care, food, or basic necessities, we ring a bell. For all those who have died because of who they are, what they believe, the color of their skin, their gender, or sexuality, we ring a bell. For all those who have died lost, forgotten, alone, we ring a bell. We ring one bell for these people, for if we rang a bell for each person who died because of these reasons, we would be here for eternity. So let not the weight of their lives, their loss, be lost on us just because the bell has gone silent. Let us remember all of the names that we have lifted up this day. Let us remember the impact that they have had on our lives, the ways that they have blessed us and shaped us, for the ways that their legacy still lifts us up and carries us forward. Thank you, God, for the sacrifices made by those who have gone on before us. May we walk wisely in their examples of faith, dedication, worship, and love. May we learn from them and commit to continue their legacy of walking in the way. May new generations find us worthy to be God's saints in your kingdom, in how we live, in how we act, in how we love. We ask this all in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>